Thank you for joining IRW Coffee Break. This is a podcast series hosted by KPMG IRW specialists within the Washington National Tax Practice to discuss current topics in the field of information reporting and withholding. Every episode will discuss a discrete area of interest in a brief segment. So we invite you to grab a cup of coffee or just get comfortable while we explore all things IRW. Hi, I'm Danielle Nishida, and I'm joined today by Lori Hatton Boyd. We're going to be discussing the proposed changes to the QI agreement that were addressed in the recently released notice 2022-23. Given the length of the podcast, we'll plan to cover some of the more interesting changes contained in the notice, but we'll not have time to cover everything. For a more comprehensive discussion, please see our recently released 90-minute webcast that we taped regarding the QI agreement and responsible officer compliance, where we'll get into these requirements in more detail. So getting into the proposed changes, the notice proposes to update the QI agreement to permit QIs to act as QIs with respect to amounts subject to withholding under both Section 1446A on PTP distributions and under Section 1446F for amounts realized on transfers of PTP interests. Prior to this, the QI agreement did not allow for a QI to act as a QI with respect to any payments under Section 1446. As a matter of background, under the notice and prior guidance, a QI has three options with respect to 1446. Option one, the QI can assume primary withholding for Section 1446, both A and F. This would be the same as the traditional withholding QI, where the QI assumes all responsibility for withholding and reporting. The QI is able to assume withholding and reporting on a payment-by-payment basis, but must assume under both 1446A, 1446F, Chapter 3, and Chapter 4 for that payment. So for any distribution with respect to PTPs, if a QI wants to assume under one regime, it's required to assume under all. And so when we think about what that W8 provided by the QI needs to look like, There are boxes 15A, 15B, and 15C, each pertaining to chapters 3 and 4, 1446F, and 1446A. If a QI checks box 15B for a PTP distribution, it is also required to check 15C and vice versa. So those two boxes do need to go together because if the QI is assuming with respect to 14B, it is also required to assume with respect to 14A and chapter 3 and chapter 4 for that distribution. Because we don't have a single box that allows the QI to make a single representation with respect to PTB distributions, and it needs to do box 15B and 15C together, if one of those boxes is not checked, the withholding agent is going to have to treat the QI as not assuming primary withholding and reporting, and will then need to withhold on that QI because that QI would not have passed up pooled information. Option two, a QI can act as a non-disclosing QI, and this is similar to the traditional non-withholding QI that passes a pooled information to an upstream withholding agent. The QI does not assume responsibility for withholding, so the upstream withholding agent will withhold in accordance with the pools. The non-disclosing QI does not have a withholding obligation unless it has knowledge that the upstream withholding agent did not withhold properly. The non-disclosing QI will have the same reporting requirement it generally does, which is typically going to be pooled reporting subject to certain exceptions where recipient-specific reporting is required. The final option for QIs is a new one introduced specifically for 1446A and F purposes, and this category is a disclosing QI. A disclosing QI has the option to act in a manner similar to an NQI and pass up pay-specific documentation to an upstream withholding agent. If the disclosing QI passes up this information, the disclosing QI does not have the primary withholding or reporting obligation. All that it will have is a residual withholding and reporting obligation in the cases where it knows that the upstream withholding agent did not withhold or report properly. 
Now, one thing we want to note here is normally you wouldn't expect a QI to have knowledge about whether an upstream withholding agent did the reporting properly, because you're expecting that 1042S to be issued directly to the recipient, and the QI wouldn't be in a position to see it. However, we have heard that the IRS is planning to change the reporting requirements in 2023 to require an upstream withholding agent when making a payment to a disclosing QI to report both to the underlying recipient, but to also provide the disclosing QI a copy of that 1042S. This would provide that disclosing QI with knowledge of whether the upstream withholding agent reported or not, because if they didn't get the copy of that 1042S, the disclosing QI would then be in a position where they'd be required to assume that the reporting hasn't been done. And Lori, I see this as being somewhat problematic because you're not going to get that knowledge up until the reporting deadline. And you're not going to know whether that withholding agent was filing for an extension or not. And so by the time you really had conclusive knowledge, you've already missed all of the deadlines if you're the disclosing QI. I'm not sure how this is gonna work from a practical perspective. Yeah, Danielle, I think that's exactly right. There's a couple things here. First, it's a it's a very different process than what's in place now when you're dealing with the non-qualified intermediary, which this is really piggybacking off those rules. The upstream withholding agents and custodians do not have a process in place currently to provide that copy, which isn't a huge deal. That can be done. But to your point, you're not going to know if they extended and if they didn't. And by the time you get the information and then correspond back with them to to see if it actually got done and they just missed giving you the copy. So much time has passed and then the disclosing QI reports and it's going to get penalties for the late filing. <laughs> There's going to be back and forth with that. So why it sounds like it might not be an onerous ask, I think it's going to be very problematic just like you do. And I think we're in a tricky position because we've heard the IRS say this, but it's not in draft guidance yet. So there doesn't seem to be a formal process to provide comments. But at a minimum, we think people should be looking for this in the draft 1042S instructions that will be released at some point, because you'll want to respond to the IRS as soon as possible. And so there's a couple other issues with disclosing QIs that we wanted to raise. Unlike the other two QI categories, disclosing QIs have a couple additional requirements in order to act as a disclosing QI. Normally, a QI is allowed to collect either withholding certificates or documentary evidence from the payees. However, disclosing QIs are required to obtain and pass up withholding certificates. Those withholding certificates are also required to have U.S. TINs on them. In order to act as a disclosing QI, it is an all-or-nothing approach, which means the disclosing QI has to disclose all of the recipients for that particular payment, or it is not acting as a disclosing QI, which means you would need documentation withholding certificates with U.S. TINs from every single payee and would need to be passing that up. And it presumably, if you had even one form that was invalid, suddenly you're not fully documented. And that seems to indicate that you wouldn't be treated as a disclosing QI, which is a really ridiculous standard because you're expecting to be passing up the documentation. An upstream withholding agent fails a form they're going to end up withholding on you because you haven't passed up the pools and they're going to see that you have invalid documentation for certain payees. And now you as a disclosing QI are going to have to pick up the residual reporting that you weren't expecting to do. That to me seems incredibly harsh and I don't really see the objective obtained by forcing the disclosing QI to do the reporting instead of passing it upstream. Yeah, and I agree with that, Danielle. And, and one thing that's baffling here is, 
you could be acting as a disclosing QI for a long period of time and then have a new investor that doesn't have a TIN. And now all of a sudden you have to have a backup process in place because like you pointed out, it's this all or nothing. And so it, it just seems very strange. And I think the rationale was for the K-1 reporting and needing the TIN for the K-1 reporting. But what happens is when the information required on the 6031 statement isn't properly passed up, which would include the U.S. TIN, then the QI does the residual reporting directly to the underlying owners pursuant to the 6031 regulations, which is actually less information than the IRS gets with the K-1 information because they're not getting copies of that. It's just the allocation going to those underlying owners. So it is baffling to me. And I think it's really important for the industry to comment on this because it makes the disclosing QI regime really difficult to use. The official comment period has ended, but we expect the IRS to continue to take comments. So we do encourage people to reach out if this was something you were interested in. The final thing I want to point out on the disclosing QI is there is one exception that for amounts realized under Section 1446F that are paid to a broker, a QI is permitted to rely on documentation obtained from a U.S. clearing organization. And that documentation would include a certification of non-U.S. status. So there is a little more flexibility with respect to treating someone as a foreign person for 1446F purposes if you're getting the documentation from a U.S. clearing organization. And then I think the second issue we wanted to get into was this new U.S. TIN requirement. Lori, I know this one's going to be an onerous one. Absolutely. So you pointed out that the forms now require a U.S. 10, and that comes straight from the 1446 regulations when you look at the validity of a W-8 form. And in those rules, it clearly states that a U.S. 10 is required on that form to be valid. And so without the valid documentation, you must apply the presumption rules and withhold at the highest rate, which for 1446A would be 37%. There is an exception if it's a per se corporation that the withholding agent could go ahead and impose the lower 21%. But I think most people are taking the position that they're going to construe those regulations literally. And without the 10, it's going to be the higher 37%. The real problem here is getting an ITIN. So that's the tax ID number for an individual. You have to meet stated criteria to even be able to apply for an ITIN. And one of that is you actually have to hold the investment. So it's kind of like this chicken and egg situation that you need the security to be able to even apply for the ITIN, but you may find a situation where your custodian is not going to allow you to purchase the security without the ITIN. So we're not quite sure how that's going to play out. And then the other issue is it's taking an incredibly long time to process ITINs. In fact, we have situations where it's been in excess of a year. So I think we're going to need some kind of transition there. And it's not just going to be this initial period because every time a new person purchases a security that doesn't currently have an ITIN because they don't have a need for one, there's going to be an additional need for some transition time for that person to be able to get that ITIN. The impact on this is, of course, there would be no reduction in withholding for a treaty and the highest rate applicable. The other issue that we're not sure about is historically, the IRS wasn't allowing refunds or credits when there wasn't a tax ID number on the Form 1042S. Now, we've kind of gotten them to back away from that because what was happening was at the time the payment was made, the person actually didn't have the U.S. tax ID number. And so the 1042S was issued without one. Subsequent to that, they went and applied for one and got the tax ID number so that they could apply for a refund. And then we had a problem because the withholding agent 
wasn't going to issue an amended form just because now there's a tax ID number because they didn't have it at the time of the payment. So it had created a lot of issues with processing and a lot of these cases went to appeals before the non-US person could get the credit. So hoping we're not going to be back in that situation again because we finally seem to see some progress in that area, but we're just not sure. We do know that the IRS is currently looking into this issue. And so there's another thing with the U.S. TINs that we want to point out, and this is not specifically in the QI agreement. This was really kind of buried in the form instructions for the W-8 IMY. But the new form instructions also make it clear that that U.S. TIN requirement also applies to a foreign partnership and a foreign trust that is submitting the forms for 1446A or 1446F purposes. This is notable because you don't usually see foreign flow-through entities who are not treated as the payees having to provide their U.S. TIN information. That the impact of this is similar. So for 1446F purposes, if a partnership fails to provide its TIN, it does not get to use the modified amount realized. For purposes of a trust for 1446F purposes, that grantor trust is going to be required to provide a TIN, even though the grantor trust is not treated as a transferor for 1446F purposes. That's a really odd requirement. And then again, for 1446A purposes, in order to be fully documented, the partnership would need to provide its U.S. TIN. And without that, they're going into the presumption rules, which you would expect the highest withholding to apply. This one really seems like an odd requirement, particularly in the case of the trust, where the trust is not even the transferor. So you would question, why do they need this? And the only thing that I can think of is that because there's effectively connected income here, and that's why you're providing the form, the IRS is expecting these partnerships and trusts to be doing K-1 reporting. And so potentially before they're going to give you any reduction on 1446F withholding, which you would get under a modified amount realized if you had U.S. payees, or you would get when you have a U.S. grantor of a trust, they're going to want to know that that partnership or trust has a TIN, which would enable them to do the K-1 reporting. That's the only reason I could see that they would want this requirement. And that's the only way it seems to make sense to me. Lori, do you have any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's right. I think that their thought is they must already have it for that purpose. And so they're just going to require it here because they're getting a, a lower amount of withholding. I think it's important to note that this was kind of slid into the instructions to the form. And so it may be uh, the first time you're hearing this, and that's because there was no big pronouncement about it. It's just when you're really doing the deep dive in those instructions, do you come across this? The next issue we wanted to talk about was the requirement that the name of the PTP needs to be included on the W-8 when the underlying owner is claiming a treaty benefit. The instructions are clear that an additional statement can be added with the list of PTPs when there's too many to list on the line. The other important issue with the name of the PTP is that it's required to be on the Form 1042-S in the payer boxes, so 16A through E. And this is really a big deal when it comes to the QIs that Danielle was talking about that get to do the pool reporting. Because the pool reporting, when you focus on the instructions to the 1042S, the pool is by PTP, which means that those QIs are going to have a lot more pooled reporting to do, especially if their underlying account holders are investing in a lot of different PTPs. And this issue also comes up because when there is pool reporting, the underlying owner can request that the QI give them a recipient-specific Form 1042-S, which we actually anticipate to happen frequently because they need that to claim the credit or refund when they're filing the U.S. tax return. 
there doesn't say much about what the QI has to do in terms of amending the pool, but presumably that needs to be done. And if there's that much more pool reporting, that means there's that much more amendment to be done each time we've got an underlying account holder asking for that recipient specific form 1042S. And we're hoping that the IRS is going to provide some guidance on that, that maybe it's just an annual requirement to update those forms, because I think this is going to be an actual onerous requirement for those QIs. So another thing we wanted to point out was that the documentation provided by the QIs, namely the withholding statements, is going to have to have a gain allocation in order to be used for 1446F purposes. And so either there needs to be an additional column specifically addressing gains or you might want to provide a completely separate withholding statement for 1446F purposes. I would note that the definition and the requirements for that withholding statement for 1446F purposes only require that the QI document the gain allocation and the status of the payee, i.e. as a U.S. person, a treaty-exempt recipient, or a non-exempt foreign person. They don't specifically relate back to the withholding statement requirements in 1441, which means they don't seem to require the alternative withholding statement certification if they're going to be merely just an allocation statement. So under 1441, you would be required to have all of the approximately 15 fields, many of which are duplicative of the information that's on the W-8, unless you make the alternative withholding statement certification. For 1446F purposes, it does not appear to be required. And so what you would need is, again, the allocation and obviously the name and then the status of the payee, but you don't need that certification. Now, I would say if you're submitting this documentation and submitting a withholding statement, I would still check the box as a safe practice. It doesn't hurt. But if I were a withholding agent accepting that form solely for 1446F purposes, it does not appear that you need that certification. The other thing that's worth pointing out is because you will have cases, particularly with respect to disclosing QIs, where the QIs are disclosing the gains along with recipient-specific information, this will tend to result in a greater 1099B reporting obligation for the upstream withholding agent because previously that upstream withholding agent wouldn't have had a gain allocation, and so they would have used the presumption rules to lead them to a conclusion that there was no 1099B reporting with respect to those payments. But now they've got the gain allocation and they know specifically which portion of that payment is going to US payees. So they will potentially have a require a greater 1099B obligation. And those were the major changes and more controversial changes that we've seen in the proposed rules. Lori, do you have any final comments on what you're seeing in this notice? Yeah, and I think just two other last notes that I wanted to cover is, first, we still have difficulties with respect to the fact that we don't have an offshore exception. So again, all of these rules apply to PTPs. We've seen comment letters into the IRS that there could potentially be 43,000 in-scope non-U.S. entities, and whether they're a PTP or not is using U.S. tax principles. It's presumed that these 43,000 entities have no idea that these rules even exist, so they wouldn't know to do the analysis, and they certainly wouldn't know to be posting qualified notices, which is where the brokers and custodians are getting the information with respect to how they need to treat distributions from these entities. And without that qualified notice, they have to presume it's subject to 1446A withholding. So the IRS has been sympathetic to this. They've 
seen various different comments of how they might address this issue with the offshore entities. But of course, to date, we have not seen any relief. So we're still holding our breaths on that. And then finally, just the timing issue. Here, we're talking about proposed changes to the QI agreement. Once the IRS and Treasury get comments, they're going to finalize that. I certainly don't expect seeing that until late fall. And all of these rules are effective January 1st, 2023, which doesn't give much time for implementation at all. Hopefully, we'll see some kind of wholesale delay, but at a minimum, maybe following the 871M regime with that good faith effort where QIs and other impacted entities have some time to transition into these new rules. I agree, Lori. With the draft rules coming out less than seven months before implementation, and we have no knowledge of when we're going to get these final rules, I think some sort of delay is warranted here or some relief. And I think that's going to close our discussion on the updates to the QI agreement. We do recommend that you tune into our 90-minute webcast on this, where we go into some of these issues in further detail. Thank you so much for joining us today. 